Uh, Take your Bibles as we start the series and go to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. I want to just uh, look at a couple of verses that will help set the tone for how we think about a discussion like this. That really helps us think about how we treat one another in the body. Romans chapter 15. We'll look at verse number 5. And this is Paul's prayer here at the end of this great theological letter. He writes in verse 5, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. So this isn't normal kind of let's just get along kind of group talk, right? In accord with Christ Jesus. So that for the purpose together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore welcome or receive or accept one another. Here's the standard, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why we start with this is not to say, okay, don't ask any hard questions that will you know, put me on the spot. It's not that at all. What we're saying is we are seeking as a church family to aim at this incredible target. We want as a body to be focused on what God is doing, to be pleasing to him, to let him, his word, his wisdom guide us. Um, No one person is meant to be getting glory in uh, an assembly of God's people. We exist for him and we exist for his glory. And that's why we as a church um, are working toward that end. All right. So you have on your sheet, you have four pages, two front and back. Uh, What I have done as we start this discussion on Sunday evenings is we start with the word of God, right? Always, always. When we are thinking about how we're to organize ourselves or um, how we should be thinking and living as a body, we always start with the word. Um, That is what has changed my mind over years and years. Uh, I had a, a family member call me within the last several months and saying, okay, I've I've been listening to you from afar about this church government thing. Could you just summarize in a brief phone conversation why you think uh, things should change for you guys? And I said, just get out your ESV app on your phone, and I want you to plug in there, in the search bar, deacons, and see how many times it shows up. And then type in elder or elders and see how many times it shows up and just start there. What does the word of God consistently present to us? That is where we start. That's where we begin to address our thinking. If a change needs to be made, that's what we want to motivate that change. So that's what I'm presenting before you this evening. I know you may have seen it before, and I know you could read this handout. But I want us to all together put our eyes on the text and begin to see the overwhelming weight of what we're seeing in the scriptures on this issue. So first, uh, we're, we're considering deacons on your page. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. I love how Paul so often calls himself that. He is a humble man, a servant of Christ, a slave of Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Two offices, overseer and deacon there. 
Uh, and then the only other main passage that talks about deacons, they're referred to listed four times here, but it's one passage that's referring to uh, their qualifications within the church. This is a respected and needed office. So Paul gives attention to this. 1 Timothy 3, uh, 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They must know what they believe. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as servants or deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Those are our two passages on deacons. We have one more in Acts 6 that we need to be careful not saying that these are clearly deacons in the sense that Paul would address them in Philippians. Um, But they're doing something similar to what the deacons would be doing. And I think it gives us information um, as to how the two offices work together. Uh, Acts 6.1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. So there's Greek and Jew uh, already struggle in the church. And they're saying their widows are being neglected in the daily distribution. There's a physical need going unmet. So what is the church to do in these early stages? The 12 apostles summoned the full number of the disciples. Now, here's where this is not normative, and in a way, this is challenging. How many disciples do you think that was at this point, if you've paid attention to what's happening in Acts? At one point, there's 2,000 that get added to the church at a time. Another point, there's thousands more. Uh, I've heard John MacArthur said in these early chapters of Acts, this could be up to 20,000 people. So somehow... They get together. They say it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. It's not that it's not beneath them. It's that their function is to teach. They're happy to serve. It's just we need somebody to do this so we can do this. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So they're giving the congregation some input. But to go from that number to seven, I think there's obviously some working together between the leaders and that congregation to come up with these seven men. And then it says at the end, whom we will appoint to the duty. So conclusions to start with. It is important to note that there's no place in our New Testament where deacons have the ruling, oversight, teaching responsibilities over the congregation. They are servants. That's wonderful. That's a necessary, helpful, God-given thing. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, servants are pointing at the great servant, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. So we're all seeking to be servants as God's people. There's an office of men who are mature who help do that as well. Number two, deacons are to have exemplary character, just like the elders What we're saying is there needs to be godly men serving in the body, modeling what this looks like, because all the body is supposed to do this as well. As a body, we're called to serve each other, right? So this is a sense where these aren't extraordinary individuals in the church. 
that have some kind of access to God that nobody else has. These are men who are simply, over time, proving faithfulness and maturity. And the body says, we'd like them to lead us in service. They're not required to shepherd with the word. Deacons, then, are exemplary servants recognized by the church. They're given by God as a great blessing and an important and necessary part of godly leadership in a body. Now, what I want to be careful to do is what happens sometimes as we've talked through this, one of the things I'm most concerned about is for us to not start putting a hierarchy in our mind. You know, there's a pastor, and they're the really spiritual people, and then there's the deacons. They're kind of good spiritual people. You know, no, not at all. There is the equality of every member. Romans 12 tells us that. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that, right? Every member of the body is important and equal in their standing before God. Every member is valuable. We do not have, well, the elders are the really important guys in the church and the deacons. They're just the second tier guys. Not at all. We cannot, must not think something that the scripture is not leading us to think. There's simply a diversity of function through the gifts. This is something I have been so encouraged by as a pastor shepherding this body. We have people serving and ministering and teaching and just using their gifts, and God is growing his church. We have men who are truly deaconing, I think, in the examples given here, serving and caring for physical needs of the body in ways that not everybody can, not everybody does, and our church is getting healthier because of it. Um, We would not be as healthy as we are if there weren't true deacons serving in our church. And they have just as much responsibility and ownership of the health of this body as your pastors do. That is what is beautiful about a church who understands what the church is. It's the body. It's us saying, I don't need a title. I don't need a position. I don't have to be in a program. I'm going to care for God's people and just get busy. That's how it's supposed to work. And as they're busy, what happens is the body recognizes that and says, hey, could you do this officially under this title or role, right? And we're supposed to be looking for more and more and more of them. We'll talk about that as we get into the discussion on elders. So now let's go next to elders. Um, We will end this at a point where you can ask questions. So stir them up, maybe write them down as they occur to you. Um, We may or may not be able to get to all of them. Um, You can submit them throughout the week in an email. Um, Pastor Jonathan mentioned this this morning at the beginning of the service. We'd be glad to meet with you. We're planning to um, pursue conversations throughout the next several months. Um, So keep your questions in mind. I know some of this for us is new. Um, You haven't been thinking about this a long time. Um, So please, we're happy to answer questions. um, And we'll make some conclusions at the end and I'll talk through um, how we'll go about some more of this. All right, so elders, where do we see them in the New Testament? All right, Um, we're going to go by region uh, because that seems to be a helpful way to categorize them. First, they're in the Jerusalem church. Even though that church is huge for a time, it seems like there's only one main church there. Okay, Uh, Acts 11, 29 through 30. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders. 
the elders of the church of Jerusalem by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. What's a little challenging, and we may get into this um, in future weeks, is we still have the apostles, which is a temporary authoritative office. But even so, the apostles are working with the elders of the church. This is still a transitional time, but the apostles are still in office at that point, and they're still helping work with the elders of the church. That's still very clear as you see the number of passages on elders in the Jerusalem church. Acts 15.2. After Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Acts 15.4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Two verses later, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. They're already exercising some form of decision-making oversight. Acts 15, 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. So there they're working together, even with the congregation, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. The next verse, they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letters. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. This is common. Two more verses on Jerusalem, okay? Acts 16.4, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who are in Jerusalem. They're um, discussing that Greek Jew issue there in the early church. Uh, 21.18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. Okay? Uh, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. This is in Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. This is an important passage. We'll refer back to this again as we walk through this. Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders for those new church plants in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So this, this was the common practice in the missionary work of Paul and Barnabas, they'd evangelize, they'd establish a church, they'd equip elders. That was their three things they'd do. And then they'd move on to the next city. Now, what, what is standing out in that? Did those men they're leaving behind them go to seminary for four years? What did they leave them with? How could they be ready to lead a church? They had the word. They had each other, and that's all they needed. As they were studying and growing and being pushed and trained, even by Paul and Barnabas, they're ready to lead. The other piece that I want to apply for us is this. They appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord. That needs to be accompanying our decisions here, right? We need to be saying, God, this isn't about our will, but yours be done. I don't want you to be convinced while I'm walking through these passages with you. I don't want you to just say, hey, I've been made the pastor here, so you guys just come along with me. I want us to see this from the word and that we're together exercising dependence on God's word, God's spirit, seeking his will. All right, in Ephesus, uh, we preached through this passage a few weeks ago, Acts 20, 17 from Miletus. 
Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of that church to come to him. Again, we have plural elders in a singular church. Titus 1, 5 through 8. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul writes to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order. Part of what we're talking about is how do we structure, order ourselves for maximum health according to the descriptions of the word of God. And he says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he describes them. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. All right, other general references we have mainly in the pastoral epistles and then in 1 Peter. This word, one word, still, we're in one word, one office, title. 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders, they authorized Timothy, laid their hands on you. 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. There are two things that they're doing in this verse. They're leading and they're preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy 5.19, do not admit a charge against an elder. Here it's singular, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. There's due process. Your elders can be removed if there's necessity for that to happen. But there's due process. Think about, there's going to be times when an elder is accused of something. It will happen. It happened to Paul all the time. But there needs to be a process, and it needs, within a church family, it needs to be seeking the glory of God and the good of the church. Not just, hey, I don't like this guy, let's, let's get him out. James 5.14, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders, plural, of the church, singular, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. First Peter 5, 1 through 3, I exhort the elders among you. Peter calls himself a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, that isn't just money, I don't believe, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All right? So, 17 passages on this one office so far. But there's more terms. Thankfully, there are fewer of them, or we'd be here a long time tonight. All right? Overseers. Acts 20, 28. We already saw a part of this. We looked at this again a couple weeks ago. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. We saw already in Philippians 1, 1 but that Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, were writing to the overseers and deacons of that church. 1 Timothy 3, 1. Again, the, the uh, qualifications for an elder. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires, desires the work 
of an overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. So we have the term again there in verse 2. And then Titus 1, 7 through 9, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. And we've already read those verses. So we're up to 21 times this office is referred to now with two terms, elder and overseer. Third term. This is the one we use most commonly. I'm not exactly sure the history of how that developed. Um, It's fine that it does. But uh, pastor is used not at all in the Bible. But it is the idea of shepherd, as we've talked about before. Uh, And that's, that's what a pastor does. That's what an elder does, an overseer does. So we saw that in Acts 20, 28. Pay careful, careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care, shepherd for the church of God. So again, this is pointing out, again, I think this is really, really important for us to see that these offices point us at our Christ who does this for all of God's people. First Peter 5 calls Jesus the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So elders, overseers, shepherds are under shepherds serving our great shepherd, the good shepherd. First um, Peter 5, 1 and 2, we've already read this. We see in verse 2, shepherd, the command, shepherd, pastor, the flock of God that is among you. That's the verb form that we see in Ephesians 4. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Now, I think we can say Hebrews 13 also fits this office. But I didn't include it in the total number because some people would say, I'm not positive. But let's read these verses and you tell me what types of things, or or we'll talk about what types of things they're doing and why we can conclude that these are church leaders. Hebrews 13, 7, remember your leaders, what are they doing? Those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That sounds just like what Peter said. They're examples to the flock. Hebrews 13, 7, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. That sounds like Acts 20. They're caring for your souls as those who will have to give an account. And then Hebrews 13, 24. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. So I think it's possible that this word leader in Hebrews is being used for those officers as well. Either way, it's affirming what's happening among uh, the church All right, so we come to the conclusions, and this is where we want to spend a little bit of our time before uh, we ask some questions, all right? The terms elder, overseer, and shepherd, or pastor, are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. I hope you're able to see that. If you need some more time to read through these verses, that's just fine. Um, You take this home with you and certainly do that. Uh, They're used to refer to the same office. All three terms are used in the same passage at least two times. Where the reference to what they do and their titles, all three are used in the same place. Acts 20, 17 through 38, and 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4. Second conclusion, plural elders, overseers or shepherds, are found in a singular church. And that's made explicit in these several passages I've listed here. I think that's what stood out to me and was very convincing to me. That the New Testament pattern is plural elders, and that includes lay elders in a singular church. Why would he say plural in one church if God intended for a singular pastor? All right? So the questions that I asked of 
of this conclusion is, do these texts make sense if you apply them and say, okay, that's fine, but maybe they're house churches in Ephesus. We talked about that when we did Acts 20. Does that conclusion have to be read into the text when you read plural elders in singular church? What's the most natural way to think of that? The illustration I gave was of Ephesus. There's never a time in, in, in reference to Ephesus that there's plural house churches that he's referring to. He calls them consistently throughout the New Testament, whether it's Acts or the book of Ephesians or to Timothy, who's the pastor of the church of Ephesus, or in Revelation. It's one church. So if you want to say there's many house churches and the people leading those house churches are elders, that makes great sense. I just don't think I have evidence in the text to make that conclusion most naturally. Perhaps, perhaps that worked out that way. Maybe they did that. I don't know how you're going to demonstrate that from the text. So that's, that's why I ask, what is the most natural way to understand these specific texts? They have to be describing plural elders. That would include, in our minds, lay elders. How else can we understand their plurality in the first century church. This is where we need to work through this for our sakes. We keep, I think we keep having in our minds, well, we already have plural elders because we have three pastors, but that's not what we're saying is the pattern of the New Testament. They didn't think of staff and lay, right? Again, we think of pastors as those gentlemen who have gone to church for years and gotten a degree and then they get to be pastors. What we're saying is if we understand the pattern of the New Testament, what Paul's doing on the first missionary journey is he's raising up men who are able to shepherd and care for God's people with the word. They didn't go to seminary. They don't have to. That's a wonderful thing. We're not downplaying that at all. When that's a full-time occupation, you probably would be wise to go to school for that. But that doesn't have to be the case. If someday we see somebody raised up in the church and they, they didn't go to school to be a pastor, that shouldn't be shocking to us. Maybe they studied something else. That, that's just fine. That's fine. Uh, number three, the reference to elders, overseers, shepherds, leaders as an office is almost always plural. It happens over and over and over again. And I wanted you to put your eyes on that. The one exception is in regard to hearing an accusation against one of the elders. That doesn't dismiss that there's a plurality in the church. The context is still assuming this plurality. John does reference himself as an elder in uh, those single chapter, uh, second and third John. But that we don't know exactly what he's meaning in those two books. He may be referring to his age or status of maturity Um, These references are not conclusively referring to his office in the church as the single pastor. Um, He may be one of the elders. We don't know. Uh, It's not conclusive as to exactly how he's using that title. It's not changing how we think of um, the office. Number four, these passages indicate the normal leadership structure of churches in the New Testament was a plurality of elders. I hope you're seeing that conclusion. And it's not just me writing it on a page that you're reading. All right. We also do not see a diversity of polity. Now, we haven't looked at all the New Testament letters. But this, to me, is an important point to recognize. This means it's not just up to us to devise whatever standard of church government we want or we think will be pragmatically most helpful. We say, what is the Bible describing? There seems to be a unified and consistent pattern in which every church had elders overseeing, leading, and shepherding the flock. And that's why I included the Hebrews 13 passages. It seems best to see these men as leading the congregation rather than ruling over it. 
They seem to be working with the congregation. They're still establishing some authority that the congregation has in specific areas. We'll talk about congregationalism in another lesson. So the plainest, most natural way to read what, think of these authors, James and Peter and Paul and Luke, what they're describing is the common expected practice in the New Testament church, and that's having multiple elders in local congregations. So I've included a quote that I think has been helpful to me to think through. Thomas Schreiner says in his commentary on 1 Peter 5.1, the church or churches in Jerusalem had elders. According to Acts 14.23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in all the churches visited during their first missionary journey. When a contingent of leaders visited Paul from Ephesus, they're called elders. The person who is sick, no worries. The person who is sick and needs prayer is encouraged to summon the elders of the church in the book of James. The pastoral epistles show the elders functioned in Ephesus and were to be appointed in Crete. So here's the conclusion of all of that. He's trying to just say from all the different places in the New Testament. Here's the conclusion. Every piece of evidence we have shows that elders were widespread in the early church. This wasn't just something that popped up over here in Turkey. It's it's what's happening all over in the early church. They're mentioned by different authors, Luke, Paul, Peter, James. They're stretched over a wide region of the Roman Greco world from Jerusalem, Palestine, the whole of Asia Minor and Crete. It's also likely then that elders function as a plurality in the church since the term is always plural. All right. The last couple things we'll, we'll cover and then we'll let you ask your questions. These questions and concerns with our current structure are what I offered to the pulpit committee eight years ago, more than eight years ago. This is what I wanted them to consider. I prepared most of this document eight years ago to say these kind of questions. How could we more accurately reflect what is described seemingly all over the New Testament in the scriptures? Does following the CEO model protect the pastor from either an excessive concentration of power in one person where the decision-making is largely on him or excessive demands placed on him burn out? I've heard of two more pastors in the last month that have resigned their ministries and not for moral failure. One, because he was struggling personally with challenges in ministry And it was overwhelming, and for his own spiritual well-being, he needed to resign. Another, he needed to care for his family. And the demands of the church kept him from being able to do that. That is a legitimate concern for our pastors. How do we balance this? When we begin to understand what it is to care for a body, not just function as an executive in those offices, but truly care for the body, Shepherding them with the word in their marriages, in their parenting, at their jobs, with their neighbors. Getting deeply into their lives. That takes hours and hours and hours for a congregation of over 240 members. How do we do that to the depth the New Testament says with three men? That's what I'm arguing. I'm not sure that we can. And again, this will take time. This will take time. What we're hoping for is not to say, well, your three pastors are failing. They're not busy enough. We're we're busy. We can show you what we're doing. I'd, I'd love to be able to do that if you have questions in that way. What we're saying is we want to go deeper and get better 
care, spiritual oversight of the body. We need to be in each other's lives to a deeper degree saying, have you thought about this? Or when you're struggling with this as as a couple, we want you to come to us and not wait until there's a great trial, great conflict. You need shepherds who walk next to you through those kind of life issues. And every member of the church needs pastoral oversight to a level and a depth that I'm not sure we're, we're currently giving. So there's a sense where the body's supposed to keep doing that and growing, and and we're growing in that. That's wonderful. But what's unique about the pastor is they're applying, the elder is applying the word to all of those situations. He's not only encouraging and building up with the word, he's at times rebuking or correcting or confronting. That takes someone who has been training himself in the scriptures with other faithful men. Number three, does the CEO model effectively enable effective shepherding and discipleship of every member, or does it tend toward general oversight without specific knowledge and personal care of individuals like a board of directors or senators? So this is exactly what I was just saying. And this, this again, was something that was already, I, I'm surprised looking at it eight years later, that this was already in my mind as part of what, what we're supposed to be seeing. More lay elders... For our, for our sake, for our application, equals more careful shepherding. Think about it. How much, if, if we really have pastors who are getting involved in the lives of their members, making themselves available to shepherd with the word, all right, at the times that people are available, with the needs they have at various times, how many people do you think a pastor could effectively oversee? I don't want to give a number because it's going to take us a while to probably get there. And we, we only elevate the elders as, as they're ready, as we agree together as a body that they're ready. All I'm trying to make the point of is I think we need more men. Uh, number four, does our current model encourage and equip other gifted and godly men to develop their ability to handle the word or is that located in one person? I'm thrilled to say that has been growing over the last two, three, four years. But here's the side of this that I'm not sure we're doing well yet. What is our church's responsibility to equip and send out future shepherds from among us? That's kind of the painful side. It's a sweet family painful side. We raise up somebody and see them grow and see God develop their gifts and then we send them away. But that's the New Testament model. That's one of the reasons we need a plurality of elders, because we want to help other churches get healthy. And it's not some magical formula. We're going to transport Super Road's way to do things. We're going to send them out ready to share the word, to teach with the word. Everyone will be equipped the same way. So my final conclusions is, according to Scripture, what is the simplest way to understand the practice and expectations for New Testament churches? Are we practicing what the New Testament and our design I think you're seeing that we're showing that our ministry is not centered on Jim or just the three pastors. We're modeling that in our worship services. That's very, very intentional. Some of these ideas are not going to be foreign to you because you've already seen them happen. If, you, if we move to elders, let's say by the end of the year, let's say in God's will that happens, what will be different from our worship service in two years? Nothing. We might have a few more men that are going to lead the Lord's Supper. That's it. They'll be ready to do that, and that's, that's fine. 
but we're already modeling that the gifts in the body are not just found in one or two people. The body is gifted. We want them to be doing their work. What should we do? This is the question we're at. What should we do if we believe this is the clear teaching of the word? Now, I think uh, the footnote I left for you uh, is an important one to ask. And this is something we need to ask you may have in your mind, okay? Is this prescriptive truth or descriptive? Okay, do you know the difference? Prescriptive truth is saying, thou shalt do this. Descriptive truth is saying, this is what happened in the church and this is what churches do from now on. Well, this is descriptive. This isn't commanded. We are not in sin because we don't have a plurality of elders as our church government. We're not in sin. But the question is, what do we do if we say that's the clear teaching of the word? So Grudem asked, we have to ask, why would we adopt as normal a pattern of church government which is found nowhere in the New Testament? Why would we do that? Rejecting, maybe unintentionally, Maybe we haven't studied it, but we're rejecting a pattern found throughout the New Testament. That's an important question to ask. And as our conscience grows, because we're looking at the text more and more, and we see the overwhelming scriptural evidence, that's what we have to ask ourselves. What do we do with this? Right? How do we move forward? All right, it is your turn to ask questions. All right? All right, who will be first? happy to answer anything that comes to mind. I can give several answers. It can be, let's talk about that in a future lesson. It can be, here's my best answer now. It can be, I don't know. Let me do some study. Um, It could be, let me catch you afterward and we'll talk about it. All right? What questions come to your mind? Yes, sir. Uh, What do you see the difference in role between a lay elder and a... Yeah. Staff. Staff. Staff elder. Great question. So a staff elder has 40 hours, more than 40 hours a week to do this. A lay elder has less time. So there's a sense where there will be a little bit different amount of oversight and responsibility he's given. Um, And yet together we, we would make decisions on how to lead the body. All kinds of decisions. Decisions that aren't huge. Decisions that are bigger. Um, Decisions about what we're going to teach next or preach next. When do we have the service for Easter Sunday or Good Friday? So big and small. So there's a sense where I think it will depend on the amount of time that man has available as to how many people he can oversee. That really is the piece that I'd like us to see grow in, is deep in our shepherding with the body. Is that much different than our current deacons are doing? So what we've done is um, maybe wisely, maybe unwisely created a hybrid, to be fair. Largely, we are keeping the counseling, the spiritual care to the pastors. We have a monthly, or I'm sorry, a regular weekly meeting where we have a care list that we haven't shared with the deacons. Um, And those are things that we're concerned about for spiritual needs. The deacons largely are caring and doing a fantastic job. We have worked on that for years to care for the physical needs of the body. And sometimes that bleeds over. But I think there's a sense where we want to be clear that what, what I'm concerned about is asking somebody who's not uh, trained or studied in handling the word. I'm telling him, you go do that. Throw him in the deep end of the pool. And, and maybe that's not helpful for him or that person. So what we do is just expand that. 
if that makes sense. So yes and no, intentionally no. Good questions. Good. What else? Correct. Are you talking about like the elders would then train people to then become elders? Yes, yeah, so by trained I mean handling. So I'm not going to say to every deacon, I have a marriage in crisis. They're headed for divorce. So deacons, you get to do that one. Um, there's a sense where you don't have to go to seminary to be able to deal with that. But this needs to be a mature man who's wrestled with the word on marriage. And I could confidently say, and that couple will confidently say, I want to hear that man talk about my problem from the word. So we're not, we're not giving those to the deacons right now. So in the future, when we fund hybrid, um, what, what does that training look like? Um, I, think, I think what you'll see is that's why we'd go really slow, number one. Number two, James 3 says, um, not many of you are called to be teachers, and that's a higher responsibility. So I want to be real, real careful, even in that it's higher responsibility in its greater accountability and responsibility. So what, we'll, what we're hoping to do is put before you uh, lay elder candidates that the body is going to say, I would go to him, and people are already going to him asking those type of questions. So there's a sense where that training you're going to already see. So again, we have a great illustration in, in how we hired Pastor Jonathan. Um, he was a deacon for years, um, I would, he was the chairman of the deacon for at least three years, and he and I talked more and more and more and more, and I realized, okay, there's more and more gifting and ability here, um, handling of the word. I was growing in confidence and said, I think you need to do this full time. Would you be willing to when there's an opening? So I think there's a sense where as we look at this and recognize the qualifications, we're going to see there are men that we trust to do that. We trust to do that, not just me. So that's a good question. Yeah, and there's a sense where we've got to keep training men to be able to do that. This, this doesn't have to be just, I'm going to go to one of the official pastors. Okay? But there's a sense where those kind of men, and I'm encouraged they're in our body, they are studying at home during the week and looking at these issues. And they're interacting with the body. And when they're talking about an issue that comes up, they're not just saying, how can I make sure you have groceries this week? They're thinking, how do I apply the word in this situation? Um, I'm already talking, so I, I already have men that are doing that. It's just not widely known, and it's not meant to be. So, yeah. That requirement apt to teach for elders, um, how much of that is like preaching, and how much of that is like smaller group, and how do you determine who has that? Yeah, so all teachers that we currently have are not elders, or going to be, or should be, and not all elders are going to be teaching in a public way. So that, that's what's really hard. Um, the Bible doesn't give us exact specifics on that question. How do we identify and implement them? What it does mean is that the elders consider them faithful men who are able to teach others also 2 Timothy 2.2. And the body sees them as men that they can go to. And when they talk to them, they're going to get a Bible answer. And if the body is wise and healthy and growing, they're going to want to find those men. Does that make sense? And again, that doesn't mean a, a man who's not skilled in that. We, we ought to be growing in that way. As husbands, as men in the church, as wives, we ought to be able to handle the word and discuss them about our problems. Uh, I would encourage in a sense, not with the official gifting, but in a sense, 
dads and husbands should be eldering to a degree in their home with the word. And, and that's part of the requirements. They're growing at that. Those homes were supposed to be looking and saying, they're getting healthy. They don't have perfect children, but those children are getting healthy and want to follow the Lord. Something is going right in that home, right? That's part of why Paul says you need to be aware of what's happening at the home. So all that to say he might be really good at counseling. He might be a quieter, more laid-back man. That doesn't, that doesn't mean he can't be an elder. This is not about personality or public speaking gifts. This is, is that man faithful with the word? And is he courageous with the word? That's Titus 1.9. He has to be able to teach sound doctrine, but also correct, defend, um, and rebuke. So sometimes that, that's a hard part of pastoring that I think people don't necessarily always recognize up front because that's not happening from up there or here. That, that's a hard thing. You have to fight the fear of man in you, not just to say, you know, what, what eases the situation. And we need to pray for the body and our men specifically that they would fight the fear of man in their heart, that, that we can have open and honest conversations with each other and say, Brother or sister, that is the wrong way to think, and let me show you why. Somebody who does that well over time, the body's going to recognize, and they'll go back to them. And it's almost like you look at that person, and if we're thinking in a gardening analogy, it's like that area of the garden is getting well-watered and fertilized, and there's health growing up around that person. There's trust. Um, That's what we're looking at, if that makes sense. So that's hard to be really specific, but that's one way. Yeah, good. What else? Good questions. Are you going to email me them all tomorrow? <laughs> Just put it in your schedule for Tuesday morning. Mondays I'm off, generally. Okay? Pastors get Monday morning blues. I'm sorry to tell you. You're just tired and worn out. So pray for your pastor on Mondays. Yeah. Do elders need to be married? I don't think they have to be. I don't think they have to be. Um, that'd be something that we could study a little bit further. And I'm saying that off the top of my head. I, I don't think that is the qualification that's required. Because if you're saying that the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 mean he has to care for his family well, it says he has to have plural children. And that's, I don't think that's what the, the um, qualifications are intending to do. Right? It says his children must be in order. So it's not saying he has to have more than at least two or three. Does that make sense? So it's generally saying what it's doing in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is describing the general character of a godly man who's meant to lead us. So what that means is, um, or, or what's so amazing about 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 is, these are ordinary characteristics that are describing every member of the body. They're like fruits of the Spirit seen everywhere else in the New Testament except for one thing. What is it? Apt to teach, so no, they don't. I don't think they have to be married. Good. What else? Yeah, Kelly. Do you know of some churches that have maybe made this change recently? Some hardships yeah. maybe they've encountered, but then also some benefits that they've seen. Yeah, that's a good question. So I'm more aware of um, from the pastor's side, um, maybe of the challenges in the sense of some of the. The technical things or the practical implementation of things. I know one church that I have um, looked at and read much of their material. They worked through this. The pastor gets to the point. They've worked with the congregation. And he submits 
with, with the other staff pastors, he submits a group of four or five men, whatever it was, um, and puts them up for a vote for the congregation. And the congregation votes it down. He spends a year figuring out, okay, what happened? I thought we were ready. We weren't ready. Praying, working with those men, talking to the congregation. A year later, not to be ornery, not to be arrogant, he ends up believing after prayer, study, talking with God's people, those same five guys need to be the first elders. And then they get voted in. So there's a sense where this is just, this is a process. It takes time. We want to be careful. We want to be faithful. I want you to get the sense as your pastor that I'm not trying to shove this down your throat and say you have to have this. I want to be ready to answer your questions. And when there's times where I'm like, I'm not sure exactly how that'll work out. I want to be quick to tell you that. Um, we do have many churches around us. This is a very supplementary encouragement to me that this is the right way to go. Many churches that have this same philosophy of ministry that we do, that's word-centered, that sees the church as the body of Christ, that's trying to enable and equip God's people, that's passionate about the gospel and its proclamation around the world, are moving to elders or have been at elders. Um, We have many sister churches in town that are there, um, I'm praying, looking for an opportunity perhaps to bring you um, elders from another church that have made this transition so we could ask them some of those same things. What did the, the, you know, the nitty-gritty specific questions, what, what, what did this look like for your church? Because um, I think that's really helpful. Um, the, um, the, the constitutions that we're looking at and comparing and, and building our constitution off of are all committed to this model. That only makes sense if we're saying this was part of our switch. I saw another hand over here, didn't I, I think? Did I have another hand? Okay, somebody else? Another question. Yeah, Bob? Are we going to be going to, is the elders going to be just another office, or are we going to be getting rid of the deacons, one of the deacons or the trustees, or is it going to be? That's a good question. Yeah, good question. So... Here's, here's how we're envisioning this and, and we're studying this and trying to figure out. Because if you just saw carefully the list of things on the deacons, that role of what they do is much less defined. Um, trustee is more of a legal term than a biblical term. Um, it's not wrong to have that. Like it's not wrong to have a Sunday school superintendent or to call a pastor a youth pastor, though there's no youth pastor in the New Testament, right? The point is that we can work together to say what is the wisest thing to do for our body. So here's, here's how we see this. Um, I believe we still need deacons that are exercising um, care over the membership, both in the, mainly in the physical way, right? Helping the pastors, the elders, do the spiritual care. They're going to work together still. So there will be roles for that. And then we'll take what we're doing with the trustees, and those will be deacon roles, and we'll, we'll just give them um, job-specific roles. So we need a deacon of uh, facilities. We may need a couple of those. And I think we have men that are able and ready to serve that. Um, we maybe say, I've seen churches say, we have a, this, this is one that we're not going to do because I don't think this is a physical need in our body, but some churches have a deacon of parking. And they're serving the body because their parking is in a small space and there's, there's conflict arising over, well, you're in my spot or we only have five spots this week or, you know, it, it's less about you're in my spot than it is, you know, this is a crisis for the church. There's a sense where what deacons are meant to do is ease the physical issues in the church. I've heard them called shock absorbers. I think that's helpful. 
um, so that the pastors can, the elders can focus on word ministry, whether that's counsel or teaching or preaching or um, caring in those ways. Does that make sense? So we'll, we'll generally move both roles up. Correct. Yep. Yep. And, and what we'll do is say, okay, what are the needs in the body for deacons and who fits that, that role in that need? What are the needs in member care? It, it is so helpful that we have developed a, a system of care um, that are taking care of people when they have a baby or in the hospital. It's not just up to your pastors. That is, I can't tell you how powerful freeing that is and encouraging that is that that men are partnering with us in that we've developed two new um groups that i think probably have deacon oversight um a service squad they're taking care of all the physical needs when we do a community fellowship a community group fellowship or rather um, a church-wide fellowship and we have a help squad and they're helping widows and people who need help in their in their homes with different projects those are deaconing roles. That's, that's fantastic. That's how the body should be caring for itself. That's good. Good question. Yeah, Tim. Are deacons going to be something like voted on every year? Or the elders be a permanent? No. So I, what I've seen, and I think this is wise, both for the health of the body in this sense. Um, I think we need to be constantly on the lookout for more elders and more deacons. Therefore, we want to move those roles to be periodical, right? So what we're thinking of um, and what we're seeing modeled in other churches is three-year terms for both. They can do two consecutive three-year terms and then roll off. I've heard for the deacon roles um, of people saying it's a one- or two-year term, and you have to look for your replacement as you're finishing up your term because serving is serving, and we want to find more and more servants. It's a good way to train people to think of the church the right way. Um, I'm not convinced that's what we need to do, but it, it, it'd be hard to find a whole new crop every time. Yes, sir. Because I know sometimes with the trustees, the continuity from year yeah. to year is helpful. Problem. Yeah, right. Right, there's help in that. So I think let's say we have a, a deacon of facility. Potentially what we're saying in the way we'd set this up is he could have six years, and then we'd require him, elder and deacon, to take a year off. As a layperson, there's a sense where if they're doing that service well, they're ready for a break. And that's a good thing. That's not, that's not waving the white flag or anything like that. Good. Yes, ma'am. Last question for tonight. That would just be the lay elders rolling off every six years, not the staff elders. Correct. Yes. Correct. So in a sense, that's, that's um, two, three-year terms and then the seventh year off. That's essentially their sabbatical. And, and honestly, as I've watched other churches wrestle through this, back to kind of Kelly's question, um, depending on the need, so... Like, like, think about this. When there is a church discipline matter, you don't hear much about it until we bring it to you in a members meeting. There are hours and hours, emotional investment, emotional capital, seeking to pray with those people and serve them and, and weep over the issue and pursue that person. That, that's part of what elders will do together in those type of difficult counseling situations. Um, that, that's part of where we're saying we, we want help with that. There's nothing more challenging in a sense than that. Or, or chasing sheep that are straying or discontent or upset. That's really hard. Um, again, just, just personally, over eight years, when, when you have people leave, especially early on in, in your ministry, you feel every one. 
And maybe it's you feel it rightly or you feel it wrongly, um, but you carry that more than you should. And you need other men who are standing with you saying, listen, this is what we believe the Bible is saying for us to do. This is our philosophy of ministry. It's okay. Um, we've developed that over time. Um, there are men that I rely on because I believe that I, I need to do that. Um, but that, that's hard. That's hard. Um, and we need other shepherds to help us do that. All right. This is a wonderful start. Um, we'll have another lesson um, next Sunday night. And then the following Sunday night, it's two weeks, Jonathan's going to look at um, the different types of polity in denominations. So why do some believers, like Presbyterians, have a different group? Why do Episcopalians um, have a different type of government structure? How did that happen? Um, we won't get too much into the history of that, but we want you to hear the differences. When we first introduced this, we've had people say, well, isn't that Presbyterian? Well, the answer is historically no, but that's all we've experienced, and we see it maybe over in another denomination. We want to help you understand that. Um, that's not something that everybody studies regularly, and that's okay. Um, so let's pray, um, and we'll be dismissed tonight. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it gives us guidance. It provides to us wisdom. Lord, we want to be a church that is healthy, as Paul encourages Titus to build up. Help us to pursue that. Um, help us to follow the wisdom that is presented in your word. Lord, this, this is challenging for us because there are many things about this that is uncomfortable because it's change, because it's new, because it's unfamiliar, because we don't know how it'll work out exactly. Frankly, in some ways, because we're happy as a church with where we're at. Help us to trust that in your wisdom you've designed, described the church working in these ways for its greater health, and for the promotion of the gospel outside our four walls even. So help us to rest in you, trust in you. Help us to be praying for one another in this. In Jesus' name, amen.